Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to this episode of a 14-year-old girl with sudden acute outbursts of aggression and severe agitation. Here is the case presented by Rahul. A 14-year-old, previously healthy teenager with no significant past medical history presents to the pediatric ICU with a three-day history of aggressive behavior, agitation, and screaming. Her mother reports that her daughter has recently developed insomnia, abnormal movements, and is more irritable with temper tantrums and episodic, unintelligible verbal output. Parents report no recent stressors at home or at school. She has also been complaining of headaches for the past week, along with things being too loud. She denies any vertigo symptoms or tinnitus. The patient is brought to the ER due to persistent auditory and visual hallucinations, followed by agitation, aggressive behavior, and catatonia. There are no recent illnesses, no head trauma, no fevers, rash, abdominal pain, or diarrhea, and no vomiting. Social history is negative for drugs of abuse in the home. Family history is negative for seizures and psychiatric disorders. The patient is sent to the emergency department and upon arrival has an unprovoked convulsive episode concerning for a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. The patient was initially admitted to the floor, but transferred to the PICU for management of severe agitation, aggressive behavior, and fluctuations of blood pressure and heart rate. Initial vitals in the PICU were notable for tachycardia. The patient was found to be afebrile, normotensive for age, and had a pulse ox of 96% on room air. Her physical exam, though limited by her aggressive behaviors, was unremarkable. The heart, lung, and abdomen exams were normal, and there were no rashes or any other bruising on her body. Her initial lab work was negative. Specifically, urine pregnancy was negative, a serum and urine tox screen and extended tox screen was negative, CBC, CMP, and urine analysis were all within normal limits, and inflammatory markers, including ESR and CRP, were unremarkable. A head CT was normal, and a lumbar puncture just revealed colorless CSF with eight white cells and zero red cells. Serum and CSF glucose were within normal limits, and protein counts in the CSF was negligible. An extended, multidisciplinary workup was initiated. So Rahul, to summarize the key elements uh, from this case, this teenage girl has sudden outbursts of agitation and aggression, recent difficulty in sleeping, irritability and decreased verbal output, auditory and visual hallucinations, potential autonomic dysfunction as she has fluctuating blood pressure and heart rate, all of which bring up a concern for neuropsychiatric symptoms that could be organic in nature. Now let's transition into some history and physical components of this case. Rahul, what are the key history features in the patient you presented today? That's a great question. Seizures, agitation, and aggressive behavior which could reflect CNS dysfunction, are seen in this case. The patient additionally has concern for hallucinations, 
which point to a primary psychiatric disturbance as well. Remember, though, that the incidence of new-onset psychosis or even schizophrenia in this population is increasingly rare. The incidence is reported as 1 in 40,000, and thus identification and thorough workup for an organic cause is increasingly important. Rahul, are there any uh, red flag symptoms in the physical exam that you could highlight? Absolutely. Well, in this case, the physical exam, although it was limited by her aggressive behavior, the physical exam itself was very unremarkable. I would particularly stress in a patient who presents with these acute neuropsychiatric symptoms to do a detailed neurological exam as well as a skin exam. For many of the differentials we will discuss, we must evaluate for rashes, which could point to an infectious or an inflammatory cause, specifically a tick-borne illness. You should also think about looking for changes in nails or hair, which may point to a vitamin deficiency, bruising or cutting marks in arms, which may be related to self-mutilation, and even evidence of trauma to the head and spine. After all, these are CNS symptoms. I would also consider doing a thorough abdominal exam to rule out organomegaly and consider a bimanual pelvic exam as we will discuss the incidence of ovarian teratomas may be related to a specific encephalidity. Pradeep, to continue our case, the patient's labs were consistent with what? Rahul, actually her labs were completely normal. Besides CBC, comprehensive metabolic panel being normal, her presentation CRP and ESR were also normal. This was interesting as CRP and ESR are nonspecific, highly sensitive markers whose elevation may point to an infectious or inflammatory process. Speaking of infection or inflammation, a lumbar puncture was done and a CSF revealed zero red cells but had about eight white cells with a normal protein and glucose. Thyroid studies, including presence of serum thyroid antibodies such as thyroid peroxidase, thyroglobulin antibodies, all were negative. As we continue to observe this patient's behavior in the PICU, we expanded our CSF and serum study profile. One of the panels which we sent from the CSF and serum was the autoimmune encephalopathy panel. The panel includes various antibodies, including glutamic acid decarboxylase or GAD antibodies, aquaporin-4 receptor antibodies, GABA aminobutyric acid receptor type B or GABA B receptor antibodies, voltage-gated potassium channel or VGKC antibody, and many more. One essential antibody that is tested in the panel which is important differential in our case, and one that has increased in media popularity is the N-methyl-diaspartate receptor or NMDA receptor antibody. The book Brain on Fire by Susanna Kehelen, published in 2012 and a subsequent movie released in 2016 has brought this diagnosis to the public limelight. Okay, to summarize, we have a 14-year-old girl with acute onset of neuropsychiatric symptoms and a working diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis, the topic of our discussion today. Let's start with a short multiple choice question. A patient presents with new onset aggression, irritability, and seizures. 
a diagnosis of anti-NMDA encephalitis is suspected. The subsequent test to confirm this diagnosis is A, MRI chest, abdomen, pelvis, B, serum antibodies against GLUN1 of the NMDA receptor, C, CSF antibodies against the GLUN1 subunit of the NMDA receptor, or D, CSF antibodies against leucine-rich glioma inactivated protein, or LGI-1. Rahul, the correct answer is C. CSF antibodies against GLUN1 subunit of the NMDAR receptor. Answer A, which is MRI chest, abdomen, pelvis, is not required for an initial diagnosis, but may be required for the detection of teratomas. Now remember, 58% of the young female may have an ovarian teratoma. Answer B, serum antibodies against GLUN1 subunit of the NMDAR is wrong because false negative results in 14% of cases are found. False positive serum results can also be seen in patients without anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Answer D, CSF antibodies against leucine-rich glioma inactivated protein, which is the LG1 protein, are typically seen in adults with anti-LG1 encephalitis who have facio-brachial dystonic seizures, memory loss, hyponatremia, and paroxysmal disease spells. In our patient, antibodies against GLUN1 subunit of the MMDAR were detected in the CSF as well as in the serum. That is such an interesting presentation. As you think about our case, what would be your differential? Oh, Rahul, the differential in this case is huge. Acute demyelinating encephalopathies would be on the top of my list in this case. Uh, This would specifically be seen after an infectious trigger or even after a vaccine. Common features on MRI would be abnormality in the gray and white matter with CSF testing suggesting antibodies against myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein or MOG. Another differential I would consider is the neuromyelitis optica spectrum. The classic antibody associated with this condition is against the aquaphorin 4. MRI abnormalities adjacent to the periventricular and ependymal regions are seen in these patients. Now, viral encephalitis are also going to be an important thing to consider. Remember, encephalitis typically causes aberrations in mental status with or without meningeal signs. To transition outside of the CNS, I would also consider Hashimoto's encephalopathy, in which there will be serum antithyroid antibodies, but there will be absence of neuronal antibodies in serum and CSF. Autoimmune diseases like systemic lupus would also be an important consideration, specifically the diagnosis of lupus cerebritis. Other rare causes of neuropsychiatric disturbances include Bricker-Staff's brainstem encephalitis, which is characterized by subacute onset, a progressive impairment of consciousness along with ataxia, and bilateral, mostly symmetrical ophthalmoparesis. CSF pleocytosis and brain MRI is normal with brainstem abnormalities in T2-weighted flare imaging are present in 23% of these patients. Limbic encephalitis antibodies are seen against GAD and CSF may show oligoclonal bands. Pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, PANS, and its subset pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with group A 
streptococcal infection, commonly referred to as PANDAS, is characterized by obsessive compulsive disorder and or a tick disorder and a temporal relationship between symptoms and group A strep infection, typically in prepubertal children. Controversy exists as to whether these conditions exist as distinct clinical entities. That was an excellent summary. And so far, our working diagnosis in this case is anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Let's go ahead and go through the diagnostic criteria for anti-NMDA encephalitis. In order to clinch the diagnosis, you must have four of the following six criteria. Number one, abnormal behavior or cognitive dysfunction. Number two, speech dysfunction, which could manifest as pressured speech, verbal reduction, as well as mutism. Number three, seizures. Number four, a movement disorder, a dyskinesia, rigidity, or even abnormal postures. Number five, decreased level of consciousness. And number six, autonomic dysfunction or central hypoventilation. Now, typically these symptoms must be with rapid onset, typically less than three months. Laboratory studies can be correlated to these clinical symptoms. These include an abnormal EEG showing focal or diffuse, slow or disorganized epileptiform activity, cerebrospinal fluid, pleocytosis, or even CSF oligoclonal banding. Rahul, if you had to work up this patient with anti-NMDA encephalitis, what would be your diagnostic approach in the ICU? That's a great question. Along with the criteria which I just mentioned, I would consider getting a MRI brain and spine. In our patient case, the MRI actually showed a hyperintense T2 weighted flare sequence, and it showed restriction in both the medial temporal lobes involving both the gray and white matter, suggestive of a demyelinating or inflammatory process. I would also do an EEG. Now, the specific EEG pattern that was seen in this patient with anti-NMDA encephalitis was an extreme delta brush pattern. Typically, there is rhythmic delta activity that is 1 to 3 hertz and a superimposed beta activity riding on each delta wave in the EEG. Serum and CSF antibodies against the GLUN1 subunit, as mentioned in our multiple choice question, will also be seen in these patients. If anti-NMDA antibodies are detected, it is very important to consider getting an MRI of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Because like you mentioned, Pradeep, we must look for an underlying ovarian teratoma. Now, let's go into the literature regarding the ovarian teratoma. The frequency of an underlying tumor, such as an ovarian teratoma, varies with age and sex, ranging from 0 to 5% in children younger than 12 years of age, to 58% in women older than 18 years. Now, adults older than 45 have a lower frequency of tumors, and usually they are not going to be teratomas in this population, but rather in the adults older than 45 years old with anti-NMDA encephalitis, they most likely are going to have carcinomas. Now, it is also important to evaluate for infections, specifically herpes simplex virus. Getting a panel that is going to test for arboviruses, as well as other infectious encephalitides. A respiratory viral panel, which includes SARS-CoV-2, must also be obtained. Now, 
In summary, most patients with encephalitis do undergo MRI at early stages of the disease. The findings could be normal or nonspecific, but sometimes they might suggest an autoimmune cause that can manifest as an abnormal T2 flare sequence. What's really important for us to recognize is that we must repeat the MRI or at least consider repeating the MRI, especially if the initial MRI, which was performed early in the disease process, was normal and the patient continues to have symptoms. Additionally, I would advocate for a team-based approach in working up and managing encephalitis. We must have expert consultation from our neurology colleagues, infectious disease, and rheumatology, as they will have great input prior to sending tests or obtaining additional imaging. It is very important for us to recognize that the pediatric ICU fellow and attending needs to be the linchpin who updates the families on any results that are obtained from the various tests which were sent. A great strategy to facilitate communication, weekly care conferences with the family to answer the questions the family may have will help alleviate their anxiety and keep them up to date on their child's progress, as well as have communication with various subspecialties. As treatment modalities may have various responses, it is important to focus on neurobehavioral rehab for these patients and also consider consultation with inpatient physical medicine and rehabilitation colleagues. Rahul, before we go to the management framework, can you briefly inform us about the pathogenesis of the anti-NMDA autoimmune encephalitis? Well, as you know, Pradeep, I'm a huge pathophysiology nerd. So let's go through the big picture. The big picture and framework, which I want to convey to the listeners today, is that there is autoimmune attack and inflammation to neurons leading to neuropsychiatric changes. To go into more detail, number one, antigens are released from viral destruction of neurons or from tumors, which elicit an autoimmune reaction. Now, when these antigens are released, they are transported by the dendritic cells to the regional lymph nodes. And remember that dendritic cells are antigen-presenting cells. Now, once these cells are going to present the antigen, naive B cells become differentiated into memory B cells. The memory B cells enter the brain and they then differentiate into antibody-producing plasma cells, which are antibody factories directed against, in our case, the NMDA receptor. In the case of anti-NMDA encephalitis, there is cross-linking and internalization of the NMDA receptor leading to decreased density of the NMDA receptor on the neuronal parenchyma. The clinical features will thus resemble drugs which we commonly use, such as ketamine, or drugs of abuse like PCP or phencyclidine, which work through non-competitive NMDA receptor antagonism. So Pradeep, to close, if our history, physical, and diagnostic investigation led us to anti-NMDA encephalitis as our diagnosis, what would be your general management framework? Rahul, that's an excellent question. And I've said before, a good basic supportive care in the ICU while maintaining patient and staff safety should be a top priority in such cases. A collaborative approach with neurologists, infectious disease, rheumatology, and neuroradiologists is necessary for an optimal outcome. 
the main job of the ICU team is to facilitate early diagnosis by acquisition of MRI and other diagnostic studies. Intubation and placement of central venous lines, arterial lines may be required for procedure completion and getting blood for multiple lab draws and close follow-up labs. Neuroleptic agents such as haloperidol are best avoided in these patients, but may be required in extreme agitation on a case-by-case basis. Close monitoring of serum CPK and patient's temperature may be required. A baseline EKG to measure the QTC is also needed. Sedation of an intubated patient may be challenging and ketamine should be absolutely avoided. Continuous EEG monitoring must be initiated if patient is intubated. The current therapy involves a removal of immunologic triggers such as teratoma, tumors, and use of immunotherapy. No large randomized trials show efficacy of any single therapy. In autoimmune encephalitis, most antibody production and inflammation is usually seen behind the blood-brain barrier, so it is not surprising that treatments that target serum immunologic triggers are rarely effective. Patients are still treated with high-dose systemic steroids followed by a taper, intravenous immune globulin, or plasma exchange. Rituximab has been used in refractory cases. So Rahul, what is the overall prognosis in anti-NMDA encephalitis? That's a great question. And the overall prognosis is variable. Even with prompt immunotherapy, spontaneous resolution of clinical symptoms is infrequent, and future relapses can range from anywhere from 10 to 35%, especially with antibody positivity. Antibodies correlate imperfectly with the course of the disease and may remain detectable after clinical recovery. And thus, it is going to be very important for us to monitor these patients clinically rather than from a lab standpoint. The treatment recommendations for autoimmune encephalitis are mainly based on consensus opinions, case series, rather than randomized controlled trials. Despite the fact that antibody production and inflammation occurs behind the blood-brain barrier, in practice, patients are still treated with high-dose glucocorticoids IVIG, and plasma exchange. In refractory cases, rituximab, a CD20 antagonist, can be considered. Antibody titers correlate imperfectly with the disease course. And, as mentioned, antibody titers may remain detectable even after clinical recovery. Rahul, thank you. That was an excellent summary. Now, this concludes our episode on anti-NMDA encephalitis. We hope you found value in a short, case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. 